This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is much more than just another greens product. It's the most complete whole food supplement available with 75 ingredients working together to help with 11 different areas of health. It's been developed over 10 years by doctors and nutritionists. One scoop of Athletic Greens is like having 11 supplements in one. Consider it insurance for your health, getting all those essential nutrients and vitamins. Also, it tastes great. It doesn't taste like you're looking the floor of a barn like a lot of other green products. Got a special offer for my listeners. You can get 20 free travel packs valued at $99 with your first purchase. All you gotta do is go to athleticgreens.com slash manliness to claim this offer. Again, 20 free travel packs valued at $99 with your first purchase by going to athleticgreens.com slash manliness. Don't miss this. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We've been told since we were little kids to be nice, but what if being nice isn't really that good and it's making you and those around you absolutely miserable? That's the provocative argument my guest today makes. His name is Dr. Aziz Ghazipura. He's a psychologist and the founder of the Social Confidence Center. And in his latest book, Not Nice, he makes the case that being nice is holding a lot of men back in their lives. We begin the show by talking about what most people think nice means, but how it usually plays out in reality. And then Dr. Aziz digs into the issues that pop up over and over again in the lives of people pleasers like anxiety, depression, anger, and resentment. We then discuss what the opposite of nice is, and no, it's not being a complete jerk. He then shares specific tactics the chronically nice can start using today to be more assertive, like saying no without feeling guilty, getting over feeling responsible for everyone's feelings, and stating your preferences. If you're a chronic nice guy, this episode is for you. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash not nice. Aziz Gazapura, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Brad. I'm excited about this. So you are a, a psychologist. You do counseling with individuals and you wrote a book that has an intriguing title, Not Nice, because the way you frame the issue in the book is that niceness is a problem for a lot of people. So before we get into why niceness, being nice is a problem, what do you mean by being nice? Or what do, what do most people think it means to be nice, but how does that actually play out in reality? You know, that's a great question. And in my experience uh, working with a lot of clients, but also for my own life, I started to see a pattern, which was that the people were, that were the nicest also had the most anxiety, the most social anxiety, the most problems with self-esteem. And I started to look at the whole concept a little differently. I said, maybe being nice is not so great. And so I started to see it more and more and more, started to talk about it with clients, and then came up with this idea of like, I need to put this all in a book. And I was starting to write the book, and then I had this strange thought. I was like, wait a minute, maybe not everyone is against nice. Maybe nice is good for most people. So I was sitting and having some dinner with some friends, and I said, when you guys hear the word nice, like so-and-so is nice, would you say that's a positive quality or, or a negative quality? And you know what I found, Brad? It was actually very mixed. Some people said, oh, it's, that sounds like they're a really good person. And some people said, oh, no, they're, they don't have, you know, they're, they're people pleasing or whatever. So I realized first things first, when I was writing this book, I had to clarify what I mean by nice. Because even, you know, someone listening right now might think nice, that's good. That's how you want to be. That means you're a good human. And what I mean by nice is actually a very specific pattern that is rooted in fear. And at its core, there is a uh, inability to tolerate upset in others. I don't want to make you upset. I don't want to do anything that's going to bother you, hurt you, burden you, irritate you. 
And so I'm going to limit myself. I'm going to conform to what I think you want so that everything is smooth. And that's really what's behind most nice behavior when you look at it. And it's very different from being kind, generous, loving, compassionate, and these other high virtues that we actually want to be in life. So, I mean, when people think they're being nice, they're thinking, I'm putting others first, but they're not really putting others first for the person. Like they're doing it for themselves because it like soothes that anxiety about being rejected or upsetting people. It's all about them. Absolutely right. And this is a hard one for people to, it's a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow, but it is liberating to see that. I'm doing that because I can't tolerate you being upset with me. I'm doing this out of fear. And I mean, so what are some, like you said, some of the ways that people, niceness manifests itself in a negative way. Is it just a matter of like not being able to say no, just going with the flow, et cetera? I mean, what are some manifestations of this sort of bad niceness? Sure. It's, it's really all of what you're saying and more. So if I can't do anything that's going to make waves, make friction, then I'm going to have to go with the flow no matter what. I'm not going to be able to say no to you because that's, that might upset you. I also can't ask for what I want directly because of what if, what if that's going to bother you? Well, what if you feel burdened by my asking? Um, I'm certainly not going to disagree with you have conflict with you. I'm not going to point out something that bothers me that you did or that's not working. I'm going to keep that all inside. I don't want to make waves. I don't want to upset you. So I'm going to hold more and more inside. So there's a lot of um, holding back, restriction, silencing yourself. And then with that, you know, we do a lot of mental games to to justify why we're doing that. Oh, now's not the time. Oh, I should get more. I should just let it go. I should be more relaxed. This shouldn't bother me so much. And so we keep this lid on. And so there's a lot of lack of expression of what's bothering us. And, and it's, it's uh, these big things that I'm talking about, not saying no, but it's really moment to moment. It's in that conversation. You know, do I change the subject? Do I, if someone says, oh, I'm, I think such and such, do I just say, oh, cool, yeah, yeah. Or do I say, huh, you think that, really? Oh, I, I see it differently. Like that seems very minor, but it infuses everything. And so really it's this whole way of approaching life that we steer more and more towards not being real and just being what we think is going to please others. And I, besides the pleasing others, right? That's what it's, what's being nice is all about. The other thing you talk about in your book is that when people are nice, quote unquote, they, they do so with this idea that, well, if I'm nice, then people will return the favor to me. Like they'll, they'll give me what I want, but they, but the nice person, because they're nice, they don't say what they want. And so they expect everyone just to know what they want, but because no one knows what they want, they don't get what they want. So that causes the nice person to get angry. It's like this weird symbiosis, like uh, what's it? Uh, uh, yeah, a non-virtuous cycle that happens. Sure. Yeah, we get stuck in it. And then there's a lot of resentment that can, that can build up from that. And uh, again, stories in the nice person's head that's like, hey, I shouldn't have to ask for what I want. If they really loved me, they would just know. And that's a that's another non-virtuous cycle because the person doesn't know, but they might love you very much or care about you. They just don't know because there's a lack of uh, assertiveness there. There's a fear about asking for what we want. And, and so we avoid it and demand that they know. And it just, at the end of the day, it's not about, it doesn't make you a bad person if you're doing this. It just is not very effective. And that's my goal is for people to have more effective where they can really have a better relationship, uh, really connect more and love more whether it's for, for work or personal life, just have better relationships. In your counseling, particularly the men, how does, how does niceness, like the, these, the, the negatives of being nice, play out in men and how's that different from 
from women. So in both men and women, niceness leads to a lot of passivity. And uh, one of the major problems that, that specifically for men that it manifests as is it severely can limit their dating relationships and their love life. Uh, they can be so passive, they might not even initiate interactions. Or if they do initiate an interaction with someone they're attracted to, uh, out of that niceness, they don't want to display or show any attraction, any intent, like I'm interested in you to date or to be with you. So they'll, they'll be more platonic and friendly and and just uh, nice. <laughs> and the result is they, they won't really have that much success in their dating life. And this is where you get ideas of like nice guys finish last and, you know, oh, women love assholes and all these stories. And it's not, I mean, there's, that's a whole another topic, but what's really missing is this clear display of like, I'm into you and yeah, let's, let's, let's see what's there because they're kind of hiding it all. So it really severely limits uh, dating and relationships. Work is another big area. And what happens is they tend to be more passive in meetings, um, don't rise to leadership positions. A very common pattern with someone who's too nice is they're, they're very good. They're very technically skilled at their job. There's a lot of potential to accelerate in their career, but they don't because of these issues that we're talking about. And of course, social life. Uh, and they still might have friends. That doesn't mean they're like, you know, totally lonely and restricted, but it's just the quality of the friendships might not be what they want. They might not be as real or authentic with people in their lives. And as a result, there can be this sense of loneliness. And that's what I really experienced. I mean, I had people that loved me in my life, friends, uh, parents, even as I got more boldness and confidence, uh, women and relationships. But I was still doing so much niceness that I didn't really feel that love because I was just putting up this front. So they were loving the front, but deep down, I wasn't actually feeling that sense of I'm loved for who I am. So along with this, there can be a sense of loneliness. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, you in the book describe in vivid detail about your, like your recovering nice guy. I mean, what, what was that like for you? And, and at what point did you discover like this was getting in the way of you progressing in life? That's a great question. I'd say there was probably two stages. The first stage was, I don't even know it was niceness. I was just so much social anxiety, self-loathing, low self-esteem, and it reached a breaking point. It's like, I have to do something. And then I started to look up confidence and dating advice and, and really was desperate enough to face my fear and actually apply what I was reading and studying. And in that stage, I was more bold. I became more uh, assertive and outgoing in some ways to be able to create dating relationships, e even socially. And that worked to a degree. But that, what that didn't resolve was the niceness. So I, I'd kind of be a little more bold, but my general disposition was still very nice. And even if I did start to date, after the first date or maybe even the first couple of dates and we'd sleep together, then I'd flip into super nice guy. Um, and one of the biggest pain points for the nice person is guilt. And, and it comes from what I call over-responsibility in the book. We take way too much responsibility for other people's feelings. And nowhere did I do this more than with um, dating relationships. So what, whatever... I do, I better not create the slightest feeling of discomfort in her. Whether she wants to do X and I don't want to do X, I want to do Y, well, I better just do X because I don't want to disappoint her. She wants to hang on a certain day, I better clear my schedule. <laughs> As I say it, it just sounds so extreme, but it was. And so even though I was outwardly a bit more bold and confident, this niceness was really plaguing me and it prevented me from actually being able to have a lasting long-term relationship. 
because I had no boundaries. Yeah. So why do you think the the over responsibility got in the way of a lasting relationship? Because I mean, on the on people would hear like, oh wow, someone would want to stay with you if they're if you're catering to their needs, but why isn't that the case? <laughs> they might want to stay with me, but I don't want to stay with them, right? Because the relationship starts to become all about the other person. It starts to become a, a cage, and that's how I'd feel. I I would be I'd want to be this super great guy. <laughs> the man of her dreams. And I'd play that role for as long as I could sustain it, which was usually about three to five weeks. And just imagine that you you can never say no. You can never really disagree. You can never, um, you know, just be you. And how long can you hold that out? And for me, it was about, about, about a month. And so it doesn't really work because it's it's not a real relationship. It's a, a pseudo relationship. It's fear-based, right? It's like, I have to be this way so that you'll stay with me. And if, you, if I was just me, then that wouldn't work for you. That's the story anyway. And so that's why it, it didn't work. Now, here's the thing though. Some, for some people, it does uh, quote work in the sense that they stay in the relationship. Because me, I'd worked on my dating uh, confidence and skill enough to be able to know that, that I could go out there and meet someone else. And a lot of nice guys haven't developed that ability or skill. So they're like, well, this is, this is the best I'm going to get. This is the only attention I'm going to get. So they'll stay in that. And that's a common pattern. I've talked to men, clients, or just people that you know watch my channel, other things, who have stayed in relationships for months or even years longer than they actually want to because they don't think there's any other options out there for them. And they're just stuck in that nice relationship. Plus, oh my God, it would break her heart. I'd be the worst guy in the world if I were to leave her. She couldn't handle it uh, over responsibility, uh, you know, all over the place here. And so they're stuck and they're in that relationship for, for years. And I imagine like a lot of things with the niceness it problem is that it builds resentment. Like you feel trapped. You feel like you have no uh, freedom that you have no say and that just like the resentment I think is like the, the kind of recurring theme I saw throughout the book that this sort of builds up and builds up in, in guys who are nice. It does. And here's the worst part about it though. Like a nice person can't be angry. That's not nice. That's one of the first rules of nice training from our parents, right? Don't be angry to be nice. And so, but what is, but and yet, as you pointed out, there's all this resentment building. So what happens? The resentment has to be pushed down, suppressed, and go unconscious a lot of the time. And that doesn't mean problem solved. That means it's growing in there. We don't know what's, it's like mold growing in the yogurt with the lid on the container. And it's building. And then it comes out in all kinds of ways. Depression, um, anxiety, panic attacks. Panic attacks is when I had physical problems, all kinds of physical pain and injuries, stomach problems, back problems, neck problems. Uh, foot problems, whatever, any part of your body can be affected, migraines. So we have all this stuff going on, all this resentment and niceness, and we, do, we can just be totally unaware and think that we're just trying to be a good person in life. Yeah, and so you said you, you, that resentment builds up, you're getting angry, you can't express it because that's not what nice people do. One of the ways it manifests itself that's really annoying is uh, passive aggressiveness, right? Where you just sort of like, you know, you kind of get back at the person, but you're not, you do it like in an indirect way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of time people aren't even aware that they're doing it again, because to, to be aware, like, oh, I'm, I'm angry at you. And now I'm going to display that in a passive aggressive way that takes a lot of self-awareness. And it also requires that you acknowledge that you're really angry at them. 
And again, for the nice person, that's hard to do. We might not say that we are. Think We might not even not show it to others, but even to ourselves, we might not acknowledge it. And so a lot of this passive aggressive stuff is happening um, out of our awareness. It's just, it's subtle things like the person texts you or calls or whatever. And instead of texting back, you're like, you look at your phone, you're like, eh, I'll get to them later. It's just like some aversion towards that person. You know, we just kind of distance a little, we push back a little, we, and we don't directly address what's going on to resume and get closer to that person. Right. Yeah. Like at work, it could be like, if you're resentful towards your boss, you, if they ask you to do something, you're like, oh, I forgot. You know, and, and that that can get you in tr- trouble, though. Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it doesn't work. Passive aggression is not a very good long-term strategy for relationships at work or life. But it's it, it really is the best that that person can do at that moment in time because in their mind, to be assertive and to say to their boss, okay, this, I you know, I don't understand why you want me to do X doesn't seem the rationale doesn't make sense to me. Can you explain why I need to do X? Because it seems like a lot of work that doesn't seem to bear fruit, right? That would be a thing that someone who's assertive might say to their boss to get clarity on why they're doing the project. The the nice person might be terrified at the idea of doing that. So their only option is to say yes. And I talk about this in the book. There's a formula. When we say yes, but we we feel like we have to say yes, but we really want to say no inside, we're going to feel resentful. It's just a human animal. And so when that occurs, they got resentment. Now what do I do with it? I don't know. Let me just tell them at my boss I forgot. Oh, yeah, I just didn't get around to that task. Yeah, I don't know what happened. I don't think I got the email. Right. Or you might take that resentment. You, you realize you can't take it out on your boss or be assertive with your boss, but you take it out on your family, your kids, your wife, et cetera, uh, because you know, it's easier, right? Because they're, they're close to you. Sure. Yeah, it's less threatening there. That's called a displacement where we take our anger. We can't put it at the, the, the source, which is scary. So I'll uh, direct it towards someone who's uh, less threatening to me in some way. So where you mentioned our parents, we learn how to be nice because we're told that. But where, what other, where, where else do we learn how to this whole idea of being nice and not asserting ourselves and going with the flow and not having boundaries? Where else do we learn this? You know, it's pretty built into the socialization of people, especially in the United States and other other Western countries as well, where it just starts in the family, but then it you know continues on with school. But basically our goal in a lot of ways is in society is to create obedience in children. And there's sort of a whole rationale behind this. It's like, look, kids are wild animals. <laughs> you got to get them in line. Look at that. Look at that. Look, they have no empathy at age three. Look at them. They're monsters. So we got to get them in line. We got to train them. And that starts in the family and uh, parents are doing this a lot, even if they don't know it. I see this in myself. We have two small kids. The urge to get obedience and compliance is strong because there's a lot of energy. It's hard to deal with some extreme emotions and desires that kids have. So it starts in the home. Don't do that. Stop that. Put that down. And here's an example. Uh, There's a, a friend of ours that was with our kids and, you know, older brother hits younger brother and takes something. And she says, don't do that. That's not nice. And takes it back and gives it to their kid. And you might look at that and say, oh, no, that's great. That's great. You know, you're teaching the kid not to do that. But really, you're not teaching the kid. You're, you're trying to enforce a rule. And I think there's more skillful ways to help that situation that doesn't impose that uh, nice training. But then they get to school and you got 
depending on what age you're starting, but you know, you got 10, 15, 20 kids per teacher in the room. You got to have compliance and order. Uh, it's the only way with a bunch of five-year-olds or six-year-olds in a room. So there's a strong sense of like, this is right. This is wrong. Be this way. Don't be that way. And there's a, there's a desire in adults to see kids be kind to each other. And we want that to happen. And I think we want it to happen too early. We don't understand the, the developmental stages of kids. They might just not have the empathy. So we try to make them do it. And, you know, you apologize for what you did there. And the kid just says, I'm sorry. <laughs> and it means nothing. It, but we're trying to train them. And I think we need to, like, nurture them more like plants than we do need to, like, train them like a dog. And I think that training is happening all over the place. And as a result, you get people that are trained, 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 trained from age, you know, zero to 16 or whatever age they start to be, maybe even 18. And then we say, great, now you're out in the world. Now go be assertive. Go after what you want. Handle rejection. Don't take no for an answer. And it's the complete opposite of what we've trained them for. <laughs> and then like, wait, why, why are you so passive? Why are you so compliant? Why are you so obedient? Well, that's what we trained them for. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Are you a small business owner? You probably have encountered some legal issues and you need some help with, from an attorney. Business owners can count on LegalZoom. LegalZoom has been helping all types of business for the last 17 years. In fact, over 2 million people have already used LegalZoom to start their business. From LLCs, S-Corps, nonprofits, DBAs, and more, you can use LegalZoom to get started the right way. LegalZoom isn't a law firm, but they have a network of independent attorneys licensed in all 50 states. They can review contracts, help with employment laws, and advise you on many of the hurdles that pop up when you're running a business. And with a support team based entirely in the U.S., LegalZoom has the right people standing by ready for your questions. With LegalZoom, there's no surprises. They provide the complete transparency with upfront pricing, customer reviews, and satisfaction guaranteed. Check out LegalZoom today to see how they can make your life better for you and your business. And don't forget to enter manliness at checkout to save even more. Again, LegalZoom. And use manliness to save when you check out. LegalZoom, where life meets legal, LegalZoom.com. Also by Saks Underwear. When it comes to our wardrobe, our underwear often gets overlooked, but an ill-fitting pair of underwear can just be really annoying. You constantly have to adjust and move things down that are bunching up. Not so with Saks Underwear because they have reinvented the underwear game. First off, it starts with their ballpark pouch. It's a game changer designed with our anatomy in mind. It keeps everything separate down there. No more chafing, friction, having to adjust yourself. It's fantastic. They also have fabric that's moisture wicking, keeps you nice and cool and dry down there. All their underwear is backed by their 100% comfort guarantee. My favorite is the Kinetic Brief Boxer. Check that out. So if you'd like to try Saks Underwear, got a great deal for you. Go to SaksUnderwear.com. That's Sacks with two X's and use code manliness at checkout and get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. Again, that's Sacks Underwear, S A X X underwear.com, code manliness at checkout to get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. Go check it out today. And now back to the show. Okay. Well, maybe we get later on, we could talk about if you're a parent, what you can do to, to not train your kid for this, this type of niceness. But before we get there, let's talk about some of, if niceness isn't what we're aiming for and it comes with all these problems like anger, resentment, passivity, et cetera, what are we aiming for? Like, what is the opposite of nice? Cause I think most nice people will hear that like, well, the opposite of nice is just being a jerk and an a-hole, but yeah, I, I imagine that's not what it is. Right. And that's, that's the question that people will sometimes say, should I just go total a-hole for like a month just to solve this problem? I'm like, mm, no, it could be an interesting experiment, but I don't think that's the, the best route. I think it's a misunderstanding of what nice is, right? It's still thinking that nice is, is a um, caring person. Really, the, the solution and the opposite of nice is to be more you. 
to be more bold, expressive, authentic, direct, and assertive. That's that's nice. So you think of nice as like this false persona. We're just talking about more being more the real you. So for example, someone says, hey, can you do blah, blah, blah? And you check in with yourself and you look and you're like, wow, I have a lot going on in my life right now. To take that on feels like too much right now. And you honor that inner, like you honor yourself and what you feel like you can handle or what you want to handle. And then you say, listen, I, I can't do X. And that's being more assertive, more direct. It's not being an a-hole. Here's the thing though. People that have been nice for a really long time hear that and say, oh, I can't do that. That's, I'd be such a jerk. So the problem is if we've been nice for too long, we're not calibrated right. Just basic assertiveness, healthy boundaries, taking care of ourselves. We feel guilty at first doing it. We feel like we're a bad person, but you're not. You just need to recalibrate to a healthier level of self-interest. Yeah, that calibration um, analogy was really interesting for me because I've noticed that too. Whenever I, I think about having to say no to someone, I'm like, I'm going to let this person down. In my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going to be devastated and it's going to just completely, they're just going to be so sad and upset that I have to say no. But like in reality, it's like not. It's like, I think it's going to be a 10, but in reality, it's a four. So like, how do how do you recalibrate yourself so you realize that, by setting boundaries, by asserting yourself, by saying no, things aren't going to turn out as bad as you think they are? That's a great question. And like any other form of fear, the way to overcome it is to face it and see what actually happens. So when I work, you know, when I work with a lot of social anxiety clients, if I talk to this person, they're going to hate me. It's going to go terrible. They're going to not like this about me. And we can do all the inner work in the world to get them to have higher self-esteem and feel ready for it. But at the end of the day, the thing that's going to transform it the fastest is to go test that out. Talk to that person and see what actually happens. And just like you said, when I say no, I think it's going to crush them. It's going to be a 10 out of 10 and ruin their life. It turns out it's a four. And, And the only way for you to really get that deep down in your nervous system, not just in your intellect, in your, but in your body, so you can feel more relaxed about saying no, is to do it. And and to do it many times, because the first time we do it, we might be like, you know, just overwhelmed and we feel bad and guilty. And then you do it again and again and again and again. If I talk about this in the book, I say that the three-step process, if you want the 30,000 foot view on how to recalibrate and change ourselves, first is to, to really get on a, on a level, hey, I don't want to be this nice. This isn't about being a good person. This is about um, fear. So I'm going to do something different. That's the first step is to really get that and decide. The next step is to do the stuff that's uncomfortable. So someone says, ask you a question, you do say no to them. You do ask for what you want. You do tell someone that you're bothered by something. You're, you're more direct. That's the second step. The third step is to work through all the inner discomfort, which is probably gonna be guilt and anxiety. Those are the two biggest discomforts. I feel so guilty for saying that. I feel so anxious because I was more assertive. Did I go too far? Was I a, a jerk? You know, we deal with that anxiety we calm ourselves. And over time, we start to see, wow, the world's not falling apart. My relationships aren't disintegrating. In fact, and this has happened for so many clients of mine, they start to see, wait a minute, people actually are respecting me more. People are, are not, and rather than burning the bridge and losing the relationship, they actually seem to be more accommodating with me now that I've been assertive with them. And it's really a, a whole paradigm shift. It's like, it's kind of mind blowing for people when they see it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what a lot of nice people don't 
realize or people who are having this nice problem is that people respect in individuals with autonomy and agency and who are bold and know what they want. Like they respect that or healthy people respect that, I guess I should say. There might be some unhealthy people that actually take pleasure in someone who is groveling and passive. But most people want, like, especially for guys, like women want a guy who knows what he wants in life and, and goes after it. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is the, you know, opposite of nice. Well, let's talk about some brass tacks things here that kind of help people kind of get through those sticking points when they're first starting on this recalibration process. I know for a lot of nice people saying no just fills them with dread because they feel like they're going to let someone down. They're going to uh, upset them. So what are some like things that people can do to get better at saying no in a way that's maybe graceful or because I think, I think it's like a lot of people are feeling they, when they say no, they're, they're afraid they're going to be awkward about it. So any, any insights there? Really? We want to become, we want to let ourselves be beginners. So I want to look great doing some kind of dance. I don't know, ballroom dancing. I actually don't, don't really want to do that, but that's a great example. You know, I want to, I want to look smooth ballroom dancing. Maybe you got a vision of some movie you saw. Like I want to be that okay, great. On your first dance lesson, you're, you're probably not going to be that. And maybe it's going to take you a while. And it's the same thing with saying no. And you really want to start to think about all these things as just skills. And usually if we've been nice for 10, 20, 30, 50 years, whatever, we haven't built that skill. The muscle's kind of atrophied and weak. So we got to build it up and just give yourself permission to be a little clunky and a little messy. It's like, oh, what if it's awkward? Okay, well, my first couple will be awkward and then I'm going to learn some things and then I can do a few more and then it'll be smoother and smoother and smoother. And I'll give some specific tips too, though, so it can help accelerate that process. Uh, one is to first and foremost, give yourself complete permission to say no to things in life. Because as long as you have this, dis this conflict inside, oh, it's, I'm so bad for saying no, it's going to come across either as overly apologetic because you think you're doing something super bad or kind of harsh and defensive. Like I have a right to say no. And so you're, you're kind of harder in your voice. But when you have, when you're really okay with it, you could be a lot more relaxed and loving about it. Oh, come on. You should stay an extra day for this thing. Oh, you know that. So thank you for the offer. That sounds great, but I need to get back to whatever. So I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to do that. And you're just very calm about it because you know it's okay for you to say no. So that's honestly, that inner work and that inner permission is the biggest tip. And then in terms of the uh, nuts and bolts of, of what comes out of your mouth, I recommend saying no early and often, early rather than later. So when someone invites you to do something, if you know you're a no, don't say, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, let me check my schedule and get back to you. That's just you kicking the can down the road because you don't want to feel that discomfort. Or you don't want to say it to their face, so you say it via text. And like that's an opportunity to step up. This is boldness training. This is courage training to be more real and authentic. So they say, hey, can you come to this thing? You say, oh, actually, no, I have plans on Saturday. I'm not going to make it. Or, oh, that, you know, that kind of thing doesn't seem like my sort of activity, but I'd love to get lunch with you next week. So you say no, you say it directly. The other thing is don't, don't apologize unless you've done something out of your values. You hurt somebody or you yelled at someone, you know, berated their character. If someone invites you to do something and you say no, in my book, that's not apology worthy. Because again, that shows that you think you're doing something wrong. Hey, can you come join me for this thing? No, sorry. 
And then don't offer like a really long explanation. I'm so sorry. I would love to be able to do it, but I got to get my cat from the the groomers. I don't know. <laughs> and instead, just you can use things like, oh, I won't be able to make it or, oh, thanks for the invite or, oh, unfortunately, I'm not free that day. So things like unfortunately and thanks indicate like you care, but they're not apologetic. So those are some of the basic tips that I would offer. Yeah. I found whenever I, I, I've offered explanations, that gets you in a bind because people are like, well, they'll resolve the, the, the explanation. Like, well, okay, just do this and then you can do it. And you're like, ah, crap. Okay. That, I'm, I'm in a pickle now because he's right. Yeah. And, and that's where there's these opportunities to just be a little more real with people. And, and this is where there's this whole art to this, to be direct and assertive, but with, uh, with care, with tact. And this is where you really see the difference between niceness and real love, connection, compassion, and, and kindness and authenticity. So someone invites you to go, hey, come join me for this ball game. And you're like, oh, I, uh, I can't that Friday because I got such and such. And they're like, oh, well, hey, you know what? It's a series. So they're playing on Tuesday night. Should come out on Tuesday. And now you're like, oh God, <laughs> I have to make up an excuse for every night of the week. So better, instead of that, they say, hey, come to this ball game on Saturday. You say, wow, that's a thank you. That's really cool. I know it's like a series going on right now. Thank you for offering me that ticket. That's, that's really cool. I, I want to tell you though, that personally, I'm not a big fan of baseball. So I don't think I would really enjoy that. I'd rather do something else with you. You want to go for a, you want to go for a hike next week instead. Now, because you've been more authentic, you, you didn't, you're not hiding anything. And, and just, just to check in, Brett, like if you heard that, does that seem like that would crush someone? Does that seem offensive or harsh? No, because the person would find someone else to go with probably. Right. And you're just, you're just telling them. And, and I do, you know, I saying, Hey, thanks for the invite is acknowledging the other person for inviting you, but there's no apology there. And it's, it's really about connection with that person. But you're, now that person knows and they're not going to offer the Tuesday one or the next one or the next one or the next one. And they just, they, they know you better. And I talk about this in the book. Like we have a choice. We can strive in life to be liked by everyone. That's the people pleasing, approval seeking. Or we can strive to be known. And when you share, hey, I'm not, I'm not into baseball, let's do something else. Now that person knows you better. And they know not to invite you to that anymore. It doesn't mean your friendship's over. It just means, oh, yeah, Aziz doesn't like baseball, so let's invite him to do something else. Well, let's get to that people-pleasing thing, because I think that's a, you know, sort of the, at the heart of being nice. The reason why people don't say no, the reason why people don't say what they want. Like, what is the mindset shift that has to happen so you stop people-pleasing all the time? <laughs> that's a big one. Uh, so people-pleasing is uh, also called a- approval-seeking. It's basically each person that I interact with, I want them to like me. And first and foremost, I want them to not have any negative thoughts, feelings, or judgments about me whatsoever. Secondly, maybe also I want them to think I'm really cool and be impressed by me. That's great too. But first and foremost, I want them to not judge me or dislike me. And without knowing it, without knowing it, most people have this subtle orientation to each person that they meet. I want them to like me. And it might not be this intense kind of groveling, I need this energy, but just it's in there in the background. And we feel bad. We feel uncomfortable. We feel like something's going wrong. We, we wonder why, you know, someone flips you off when you're driving and the most common reactions are to be hurt. Why? I didn't do anything wrong or to get enraged back, which is just the flip side of the hurt. So 
to shift this is the Ooh. next person like me. I mean, the next person like me, that means I need everyone to like me. That that's a that's an exhausting quest. And what's missing is well, why don't I feel secure in myself? And to bring it back to you know child rearing and growing up, this comes from a, a attachment attachment theory um, from John Bowlby, who's a, a psychologist that really researched a lot of this. But we connect with our parents, we attach to our parents, and they attach to us. And ideally, the parent is like, hey. I love you. I'm generally patient with you and try to spend some time with you and give you attention and be with you a lot as much as I can. And you matter, you valuable and so forth. And then we get a secure attachment with that parent and we feel like, Hey, I'm pretty worthwhile and I'm okay. And I, out I go into the world. Problems start to occur though, when unfortunately that attachment maybe is not the best. Maybe our parent is really busy a lot of the time. Maybe they get really angry at us. Maybe they like us if we do X and Y, but as soon as we start doing, we get messy or we talk back or we're wild, they get really angry. And, or they're just like in the case of my dad, my dad was just um, very busy with work, but also when he was at home, he was just kind of in his own world and in his own head and not able to like really slow down and be with his kids and pay attention to them. And so with that comes this sense of like, am I okay? Why doesn't, am I, am I okay? And they call it insecure attachment. And so I think at the root of it, a lot of us have that kind of insecurity in our attachment. You might be saying, well, how did, what does this have to do with approval seeking? Well, I don't have that strong attachment bond with anyone. So then I go to you and I'm like, can I plug my hose in with you? <laughs> Will you give me attachment? No. Okay. How about you? And we're just trying to get it from every person that we meet. And the solution to this is not just a mindset shift. It's like a heart shift. It's like a, we have to heal that inside of us that is insecure, that is missing. And that's a, that's a process I could talk more about if you give you the, the top level view if you're interested, but we really got to basically learn how to uh, unconditionally be with and love ourselves and, and heal up those attachment issues so that we feel more relaxed talking to other people. Well, so yeah, top level, like how, what does that look like? That process? Look sure. Like? Basically it means uh, that when we feel insecurity, inadequacy, uh, pain of not enoughness, needing, oh man, I'm so upset because they didn't like me. Instead of scrambling so much to get it out there, we need to slow down and take time to like find that grasping, aching part of us. It's usually in our chest, maybe in our stomach, in our throat, like physically in our body and be with it and then start to uh, treat that like the parent we never had. So basically we give it attention. And I say it, it's kind of like a part of us or feelings inside of us. We give that, so that part, let me give you a more um, concrete example. I really want this uh, woman to like me. You know, maybe we just met or we went on a date and now uh, she's not responding to my texts or doesn't, I don't know, maybe she doesn't seem interested in me for a second date. And I have this like overwhelming sense of, anxiety and I messed it up and I'm worthless and all this pain. And a lot of the time we might obsess on what was the text that I sent her? How do I, how do I get her back? What's the, you know, you go online and look up some pithy texts to win her back or whatever. And uh, instead of all that, what I'm suggesting is you, you literally stop what you're doing. Maybe go for a walk, um, sit down in your house or whatever and turn off all TV and everything and just breathe and go inward and find that squeezing pain right in your chest, in your stomach, somewhere else in your body. And it's, if it's strong, you'll, you'll feel it. 
and you, and you just um, relax and give that. Imagine it's like a 10-year-old kid or a five-year-old kid or a 12-year-old kid, doesn't matter, whatever age, who's just like, hey, I want this person to like me. And you just meet it with empathy, patience, and love. Yeah, of course. You you want you really want her to like you. You want it hurts that she's not responding to you. I know. You want control. You wish you could get it, but you can't. And it's not so much the words. I'm using words here, but it's really an attitude and energy towards yourself. And here's the biggest thing I found. It's actually most important, more than the words, more than the energy. It's the attention. It's giving that part attention. Just like, because it's that kid inside of us that didn't get that attention. And I found that for to really heal this stuff, people need to do this on a daily basis. You know, not that long, maybe 15, 20 minutes a day. But, you know, as you walk, as you run, do your exercise, you just, or, or just sitting in your house, you just focus in on it. And over time, it's not like a magic light switch, but over time, over a couple of weeks or months, people really heal it in a deep way and start to feel a lot more secure. And all of a sudden, something like that happens and I'm like, wow, I don't feel so stressed out about it as I used to. Yeah, that sounds a lot like a loving kindness meditation or self-compassion meditation. I think I've heard it described. So yeah, and you can find those online if you want, if you're looking for a guided meditation, find some self-compassion meditations. Uh, and again, like once you have that secure attachment, I imagine that resolves a lot. I mean, like you feel more secure about being rejected because you're like, well, I'm okay right? Because I'm, I'm good with myself. You feel okay by saying no, because you, you have that, that foundation within yourself. So maybe that, that's one of the key, like you said, like it's like that heart change can go a long way in clearing up a lot of this stuff. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about boundaries. What, what do you mean by boundaries and why do nice people have such a hard time establishing or keeping them? Sure. Well, boundaries are simply knowing what you want or don't want in a situation, your preferences, if you will. And the example I use in the book is you're sitting in your yard, you share a, a backyard and there's a fence between you and your neighbor and there's a little gate there or something and your neighbor comes over and uh, opens the gate to your yard and you're just sitting in your backyard. Does that bother you? I don't know, maybe not. And then they walk into your yard and they go to your, you have a peach tree in your yard and they walk over and there's some fresh peaches growing on there and they grab a peach and they start to eat it. Does that bother you? Maybe, maybe not. Then they start to walk over to talk to you and they step on your flowers. Does that bother you? And it's a little interesting thought experiment because this is a sign of, of boundaries. Like, do you want them to enter your yard? Do you want them to eat your fruit? Do you want them to walk on your flowers? And we want to know, first and foremost, what do I, what do I, what's right for me? What do I want or not want? And so in that instance, people can usually imagine like, well, maybe I wouldn't mind them coming into my yard. You know, we, we like to talk now and then. But wait a minute, eat my fruit. Step on my flowers. And so those are signs of your boundaries. So you're talking to someone and um, you know they're sharing about their lives and that's interesting for you, great. But all of a sudden they start going on and on and on and on and there's no pauses in the conversation and there's no focus on you at all. And you start to feel like, I'm not really enjoying this. That's like someone stepping on your flowers. That's a sign, that's a signal. And so the, the most important part of being able to have boundaries is to know what they are. And you know what they are by paying attention to that inner, ooh, I like this, or I don't like this. And we, we know if we tune in. Now, we can have some nice person training on top that says, don't assert your boundaries. People are, you know, if you tell that guy not to eat your peach, he's going to 
yell at you <laughs> or don't change the subject because you're going to crush that person's feelings. You know, so we can have some nice stories that prevent us, but at the, at the core level, it's just knowing and being tuned in to say, what do I want or not want in this situation? And honoring that. And in the end, like a lot of people think that they don't, they don't have boundaries. It's going to make people like them. But as we've been talking about, if you don't have boundaries, like people in a weird way don't like respect you less and they like you less. And it prevents you from having that really like genuine relationship with that person. Really? And, and it's, you might get quote, get people to like you, but not the people that you want. You get, you're going to get people that are that have their own issues with boundaries. And probably if you're the one with no boundaries, you get someone who is used to stomping all over the place in other people's yards. So someone who's more controlling or you, that's what you're going to get. And when you uh, establish this and have those boundaries, you you do have relationships, but with people who also respect boundaries and have healthier boundaries and it leads to a much better relationship. Good fences make good neighbors, right? Yeah, there you go. So let's say... You are a parent. Okay, let's say you're you're a parent and you're like a recovering nice addict, right? And you're realizing that you're you've got this issue and you're working through it. Like, how what can you do to ensure like you don't pass this on to your kid while simultaneously teaching them how to not be a nice person, but a, a good person? Um and whatever that means. So Yeah. Now, well, that's a great question to ask is what does that mean to me? Because when we say, I mean, good and bad are these blanket uh, sort of evaluations. That's a good person or a bad person. What does that mean? Does like so? Really, what we want to look at is what are my values? What's important to me in life? Is health important to me? Is being compassionate important to me? Is giving to people in need important to me? Is taking care of the earth important to me? Like, what are the values that I have that I want to impart on my children? And if you're a parent and you've never sat down and done that on paper or gone on a long drive and really thought about it and talked about it with your spouse or whoever you're raising your kids with, um, I, I highly recommend you do that. And that's a fundamental thing that's overlooked. And it's, it's good for you, for you to do for yourself too. You know, what, what are my values? What's important to me in life? Then how do I want to impart that on my kids? Well, the, the first way that kids learn from their parents is modeling. The second most common way that kids learn from their parents is modeling. And the third way is also modeling. Like your kids are going to learn way, 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 way more from watching you and seeing how you operate in the world with other people, with your, in your, within your family, and with them. They're going to observe all that and they're going to replicate a lot of that. So you value health, but you smoke it's not going to, the message isn't, it doesn't matter what you tell your kids. And same thing, if you value kindness and respect and you want your kids to be kind and to respect people, and then you treat them in a disrespectful way. Hey, stop that. You put that down. And that's how you're talking to your kids. It doesn't matter what you tell them to do later on. What you're modeling for them is this is how you talk to people. You boss them around, you bark orders at them. And sure enough, that's what you're going to get back. And kids are a great mirror for that. So I think that's the second step is to is first to get clear on your values, then to do the inner work to really be able to live by your values. And that ain't easy because kids are demanding. I absolutely will tell you that. So that's the, the one of the core challenges. That's the growth opportunity in parenting is to be able to mature faster with those kids. And then the last part I'd say is if you want them to be you know, the biggest thing that people want is their kids to be caring about other people, kind, you know, it's, it's hard to watch your kid like, I don't know, knock some other kid over or something like that. 
And so parents want to get in there and stop that behavior right away. So don't you ever do that again. And then they also feel a little embarrassed. <laughs> oh man, people saw my kid do that. I got to I gotta, uh, publicly chastise my kid, even though it's not going to probably do anything, but just to show other parents that I'm doing something here. And I really think it's worth re-examining all that and saying, well, how do kids actually grow? And one thing that is different is in attachment-based parenting, you realize that the attachment and having a really secure, strong, healthy attachment with that kid is going to grow them into a thoughtful, caring, self-directed you know, a member of society. And that emerges over time like a plant. So you don't need to like whack it every time it goes out of line. You just keep working with it and have that secure attachment. Treat them with respect. Have, um, and this is a hard one. Can I develop unconditional love? What does that even look like? Because man, it's hard not to withdraw love when they do something annoying. But can I find it in myself to still lovingly tell them no and not exasperatedly telling them no? I mean, these are these are ongoing challenges for, for me and I think for all parents. But I think it's a fight worth fighting and the growth worth doing because ultimately, you know, you have a kid who is is kind and caring, but is also more um, self-directed and assertive and doesn't have to deprogram all this nice stuff that all of us do. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like having kids can help a nice person. Like, give, it gives you like the motivation to to take care of yourself first because you realize how much your kids are watching you and they're going to model your behaviors. Like it's kind of a turbo boost. To, oh to yeah. Getting out of your own stuff. Absolutely. Well, Laziz, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about uh, the book and the rest of your work? Sure. I'd say the best place is on my website, which is socialconfidencecenter.com. That's socialconfidencecenter.com. And there's uh, information about all my books there, um, as well as an ebook that people can get for free to get started right away. And, um, and live events and YouTube stuff. And just, a, it's a great place if any of this intrigues you and you want to go further, um, there's a lot of resources there. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Aziz, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. This was fun. Thanks, Brett. My guest today was Dr. Aziz Ghazipura. He is the author of the book, Not Nice. It's available on amazon.com. You can also find out more information about his work at socialconfidencecenter.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash not nice, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. <laughs>